0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. last few Sundays in particular, I felt the need to make sure that anyone visiting with us understands the, at least the general sweep of of logical development of what has been explored from the pulpit in the recent months, because the subjects of these last few weeks have been startling subjects, and for people to walk in and say, oh my goodness, I'm not sure that I knew any church ever dealt with those subjects... We have been looking at a topical series of messages called, After Death What? Having considered some basic areas, having considered the believers' strong and firm hope that we are with Christ, our souls are with Christ assuredly and immediately after death, I then departed for a number of weeks, three weeks on the subject of judgment, and now the fourth week on the subject of that word we don't even want to utter, even in church, What is hell? Now, I assure you this is the last Sunday I intend to deal with this difficult subject, and after breaking for December to look at other things in the Christmas season, we'll come back, Lord willing, in January and February, those whole months, to look at the blessed side of eternity at what God promises for believers in the resurrection life and the new heavens and the new earth. So, that'll be a whole different way of seeing things than the awful things we've been looking at. But we've acknowledged we have to see these truths if we're to understand the gospel. And so today I read from Revelation chapter 20 a text that you might truly say could really be called almost the the most grim and awful text in all of the Bible. It is the last place in the Bible that hell is spoken about. I won't be developing this text in detail at all. It's It's more of a jumping-off place, I would say, today for a broad consideration that we'll be looking at a topic, but I will certainly mention it during the message. I pick up in the middle of this chapter 20 of Revelation. It's telling of the mustering of Satan's forces. Of course, it's a text that speaks in symbol of of great events that don't necessarily one-for-one correspondence in a literal way as they're described. But nevertheless, it does describe real events of history. And Satan is bringing together his forces against the people of God, as I pick up in the middle of a a text here in verse 9. We read this, "...they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves." But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, Earth and sky fled from His presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Oh God, our Father, these are solemn things. We cannot omit them from our faith hard as they are to dwell upon. But once again, we pray that in all that we consider about it, the Lord Jesus Christ might shine through. For His glory we pray. Amen. In 2001, it was my habit to take Tuesdays off. And so on September 11, 2001, it was my day off, and I had slept in a little bit. Carol and I had a late breakfast. I know we had a couple of tasks around the house we intended to do. But for some reason, I flipped on the TV to see if there was any news. And I, as all of you, was absolutely shocked to see the first scene on my television screen, one of the World Trade Towers with thick black smoke pouring out of its side. I called my wife into the room and said, come quickly, look at this. And a few minutes later, I don't think we had it on even seven minutes or so, we watched, as many of you did, in real time as a second airplane flew into the other tower. I recall what I said to Carol, two sentences. This has to be terrorism. And the second thing I said was, do you realize thousands of people just died before our eyes? You know, some of the same gut-wrenching, horrified sensations that were stirred in all of us as we remember that day, that awful day, have stirred in me as I've had to look at the most awful subject of Scripture with you for the last four weeks To speak about hell is to enter a subject area so overwhelming that neither speaker nor listener can be at ease at all with what we are considering. The topic has no attraction to any mind that is a sane mind. It's an intolerable topic, but it's a necessary topic. One theologian wrote to say, our frail souls could no more cope with any fuller revelation of hell than the Bible has already given, then they could absorb a more detailed revelation of heaven. You hear what he's saying? We've only got the hint both of glory with Christ and of woe without Him. But even the hint is enough to shock our minds. Hell exists according to Holy Scripture. Jesus Christ and all major books in the New Testament declare it plainly. It is the horror from which salvation by the cross delivers every believer in Christ. You ought to utter a fervent thanks be to God when you think of that. Just to briefly summarize a few things we've seen that the Bible says about hell, it is real. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination, it's not an image, it's not a metaphor, it is a reality. Jesus declared it to be the woeful destination for all who reject God's overtures of grace in this life. It is described in vivid pictures and symbols, and we have to assume in every case that the reality is not better than, but worse than, any figure of speech used to describe it. It is said to be prepared for the devil and his angels, as we've seen here in Revelation 20. But as this text also declares, it will be shared by human souls. Now, the great emphasis of Scripture, and we have to keep saying this emphasis, is that in Christ alone there is a way of escape. Why will you die? The Scripture says, you don't have to die. You don't have to go that way. Christ is the gate of life. And He's offered to all who will hear and run to Him and cling to Him and receive from Him the justification of His righteousness, the adoption of being a son or daughter of God, and the assurance that heaven is yours even today. It is your possession. But as we wrap up this subject, as far as this particular series at least is concerned, we want to engage one more subject that's often talked about in this particular area, and that is the biblical duration of hell. Here's the question that guides everything I'll say today Does hell have permanent occupants who suffer unendingly? Or is it rather a case that lost souls are simply blotted out of existence after judgment, after this white throne judgment that Revelation 20 told about, and they no longer exist like a candle snuffed out or blown out in a stiff wind? As I come to a conclusion today, I hope you will find there are some genuine practical applications for us from the consideration of even so hard a subject as this one. First of all, you need to know that for centuries there have been Christian thinkers who, for various reasons, and there are actually several different varieties of folks holding this position, but I can't go into all the nuances of it, but they have held a position that is classically called annihilationism. That's a $4 word, annihilationism. It's an argument that says hell means final extinction for lost souls. I'm going to very quickly try to run through the three main points of their argumentation. Now, this is not necessarily an argument coming from pure materialism. You would know that there would be those, not Christians at all, whose God is perhaps science who say that a body and a human mind is only so many carbon molecules and electrical synapses, and so when death comes, that's the only punishment we receive. We just don't exist anymore. We're nothing but bodies, they would say, and when the body is gone, there's no you left. After heart and brain and have stopped functioning and lungs have stopped breathing, they would say nothing survives. That's a non-Christian materialist Mindset that has existed from Aristotle down to many scientifically-minded people or atheistically-minded people even today. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Christian scholars who, beginning at least as far as we know from at least the fourth century A.D., have had ideas to say, as we read the Bible, we see a general resurrection occurring at God's day of judgment, this great white throne, and then after judgment, the lost are simply blotted out. They're extinct. They're annihilated. They no longer exist. Now this concept was condemned as a heresy numerous times in church councils. I could go through them, but in the in the various centuries there were councils of the church that said, "No, that's not what the Bible teaches," and in fact, if you think that, you're a heretic. But in the late 20th century, various approaches to this subject have emerged again with new strength, and it actually has probably more strength right now within broader Christianity than it's ever had, at least for a couple of centuries. In fact, there are those who, who sincerely respect Scripture as God's Word and who in just about every other doctrinal area would be right on track. You would benefit from their wonderful preaching of Christ and the gospel, and yet they would say on this point, we are inclined to say annihilationism is the answer. And so not everyone who thinks this way necessarily needs to be labeled as a heretic. I would hope you would hear that and understand it. There are those who do come at it from a very atheistic, sarcastic, and critical standpoint, but not everybody. There are some who truly respect God's Word but say, we think this is what it says. Now, here are the basic three arguments. I give them very quickly. You know my time is limited in this if I'm going to first give the arguments and then try to answer the arguments. First of all, the annihilationist argument centers on references in the Bible, and I think its primary plank that it stands on are the way in which certain words are used in the New Testament, words that that mean destruction or perishing. Those words particularly are focused on. And in other words, what they're saying, doesn't the Bible say that, that destruction comes to the lost soul? Doesn't it say they perish? And if indeed, as, as we have studied in past weeks, the Bible says immortality is the gift of God's essential life that He gives to those who are in Christ and are redeemed and have this whole new being, and they are called immortal then isn't it a natural conclusion that those who are not have that immortality that belongs to the Christian are gone? And the logic is this, uh, that if John 3.16 says, through faith in Christ, you will not perish, then apart from faith in Christ, you will perish. And perish implies to them non-existence. Now, to be fair, Many texts do use this kind of terminology, the terminology of destruction. And one of the key ones would be Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus told us that we shouldn't fear things in this world, but fear God, quote, who has the power to destroy body and soul in hell. Or perhaps 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, another example, which says that, Christ's great second coming. Unbelievers will suddenly realize what is happening, and it says destruction will come upon them suddenly. Or 2 Peter 3.7, which speaks about the destruction of ungodly men. Now, those are only three samples. I could have cited quite a few others, uh, probably 15 or more significant texts that use destruction or perishing, and cause people to say, don't these words mean the end of that human person who is destroyed or who perishes? That's their logical thinking, and they're not being illogical as far as the normal use of language might imply. Now, secondly, there's another argument often heard, not from everybody, but from some who would say that if There is eternal, endless suffering for the lost. That, in their minds, is an absolute travesty of the justice of God, the justice question. A man named Clark Pinnock is a very interesting study. Some of you may have heard of him. Forty years ago, Clark Pinnock was a true blue, solid evangelical who wrote books about the inerrancy of the Bible. Clark Pinnock has taken quite a turn leftward. And it's not my personal judgment alone, but you'd have a difficult time calling him an evangelical today. And Pinnock probably does come from the left wing of things and has rather bitter criticisms against Scripture today, but he at least gives me uh, some good quotes to to capture uh, this issue of the justice. Here's what he said. What purpose of God would be served by the torture of the wicked except sheer vengeance and vindictiveness? Pinnock said there would be a serious disproportion between time-based sin and suffering experienced forever. In other words, if a five-year-old child steals a cookie from the cookie jar, he doesn't get the death penalty. That's an extreme illustration of what Pinnock is arguing. The punishment does not match the crime. A limited offense, quote-unquote, limited offense is the key, you're going to see later, should not receive an unlimited penalty. That's the justice argument. And thirdly, annihilation advocates would declare that a hell of endless suffering, oh, they say it couldn't coexist with with a God of love. You know, you hear that my God is a God of love. I've told you many times, beware of anybody who starts a sentence with my God is because they're inventing God. They're conforming God to their own thinking. But people say all the time, my God is a God of love. How can we say God loves the world if he allows this? Once again, I'll quote Pinnock. He says, how can Christianity possibly project a deity of such cruelty whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture on creatures, however sinful they might be? Now, those are the three main arguments. Words about destruction and perishing, it's against the justice of God, it's against the love of God. Now, here's something I want you to admit. I have to admit it. Isn't it true that our own emotions want to agree with annihilationist arguments? Is there a person here so sadistic, so twisted and monstrous who would say, oh, no, I'm in favor of torturing people to the absolute limit? We have to acknowledge that the natural human tendency of what we would call humaneness or compassion would have us say, why, of course, if, if God has got to punish these people, then extinction, annihilation, would be the most humane way. We, we're even concerned about humanity if an animal has to be put to death. But the problem here is that emotion alone is not the decider of this issue. Scripture has to be. So in the second place, I would ask you to consider the biblical case for eternal suffering of the lost. And as I have analyzed this and looked at it and weighed and evaluated and prayed about it, I have to say to you that I must stand aligned with the main body of Christian orthodoxy for 20 centuries that say despite the plausibility of annihilationist arguments, or at least the initial plausibility, a closer inquiry reveals weaknesses. And hard as it is to swallow, the Bible's greater evidence is on the side of saying that hell involves endless woe, endless regret, and in some measure, endless pain. First this, we respond to the argument about the words destruction and perishing. And the fact is... It's really not too complicated here. The Greek words, there are a few particular words involved, which you can study in the lexicons, the meanings of these words, what, how they've been used in, in language of the past and what meanings they've had in different contexts. They do have different meanings in different contexts. And while destroy might mean to sow, you know, like what a, a nuclear explosion does to a city, it absolutely levels and, and something is just gone. That's one kind of destruction to destroy can mean different things and in fact there are numerous biblical examples where it means something else it means losing your primary function or purpose or usefulness while continuing to exist here's an example one time i remember uh, getting a, a gift of some really nice wood chisels i'm not that much of a craftsman in wood but i do know what a chisel's for and And I knew that chisels aren't for use on concrete, but I was chiseling a piece of wood and the chisel slipped and went off and whacked the concrete. And a great big triangular piece was broken out of the blade of the chisel. So much, so large, that the chisel was, for all intents and purposes, of no value from that point onward. And I could have said, I just destroyed this chisel in terms of biblical understanding. I had ruined it for its intended purpose. Another way we'd think of it might be a a railroad train that goes off the tracks and suffers a catastrophic wreck, and the engines, you know, a pile of smoking metal junk, and the cars are crashed, and we say a train was just destroyed. The molecules and the material of the train are still there, but it's of no value except to haul it away to some junk pile and cut it up. The train is ruined. And in this way, the Bible uses these words to say that things can be biblically, quote, destroyed or perish or be ruined while still existing. And really, when you think about it, if you know that your God-intended function in this world in in time and eternity is what we say to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and yet you come to a place where you no longer can do that, and you're just an empty shell of a human created in God's image, you're ruined. You're destroyed, even though you continue to exist. The Scripture uses the word perishing in a non-literal way. There's Matthew 9, 7, it speaks of a wineskin, containers they used to keep wine in, and perhaps if you didn't allow for the pressure, the wine would ferment too much, and it tells of a wineskin that burst. And the word used, the actual word in the language, is the word that the wineskin perished. It was no good anymore. It couldn't fulfill its function anymore, even though it existed as a split wineskin. Then there are other biblical passages which go beyond this, merely looking at perishing and destruction, and they have to be considered, and the annihilationist just often ignores these passages, where the idea of eternal suffering and eternal life are dealt with in the same verse and compared and contrasted. A good example would be a verse I mentioned a few weeks ago. I put some highlight on Matthew twenty-five, forty-six. It's the end of the the separation of the sheep and the goats, the sheep being believers, the goats being unbelievers, Jesus told this story. And his very end statement in Matthew twenty-five, forty-six was some will go away to eternal punishment while the righteous go away to eternal life. Now ask yourself, if you use those words in a single sentence and you say eternal punishment and eternal life and you mean that the second one goes on and on forever with no end, what does the first one mean? How can it mean something different? The same adjective used in the same sentence. Another grim verse to look at, Revelation 14.10 following, which talks about lost people, another one of those very grim statements, where it says of them, In Revelation 14, 10, and 11, that they will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Remember I said that the glory of God, the holiness of God is actually the fire. The the awfulness that the unbeliever has to face is is God's wonderful holiness because he's unholy. The, The sinner is unholy. And it says... They'll be tormented in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and they will have no rest day and night. That's pretty hard. But it's awfully hard to make it mean anything but what it says. And today I told you I'm not going to attempt a full treatment of the text I opened with Revelation 20, but it's a notable text because it is the final time that hell is mentioned in the Bible. It's the final consignment of the arch enemy of humanity, and the arch enemy of God, the devil, Satan, to be consigned at last. You know, the whole Bible from Genesis onward has been a battle with Satan. The battle ends right here. And he is consigned to what is called the lake of fire, where it says in verse 10, he will be tormented there night and day forever. It doesn't burn him up. He's not annihilated. He's not extinguished. And then in verse 15 it says, those whose name are, names are not written in the book of life also go there. Why would you make the leap to say Satan is tormented day and night forever, but human beings cast into the same place are utterly consumed and extinguished? You see, difficult as it is, the Scripture really seems to argue against annihilationism. How do we respond to the issue of justice that the annihilationists raise? Well, primarily we respond this way. You're underestimating what sin is to a holy God. When you say, how does a limited offense bring an unlimited response? Sin isn't limited. Sin against an eternal, holy, absolutely grand person, the person of God, is an eternal offense. It is an assault on God in his perfections. David was right in his prayer. He had virtually murdered somebody, not exactly with his own hand, but he arranged it, and he had committed adultery with that man's wife. He certainly had wronged two people very badly. But when he prayed in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. David understood that sin is an assault on the holiness of God. It is saying to God, I rebel against you, I hate your rule over me, and I don't intend to have it. And James 2.10 says, whoever sins against even one point in God's law is guilty of breaking all of it. Sin is an infinite crime. We can't get this through our heads. We say, no, 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 it's a little crime. Well, it's a little crime because you have a little idea of God. What about the love of God? How in the world do we reconcile a hell of suffering with a loving God? Well, this one's not really that hard. It was the love of God that led Jesus Christ to his cross, where he met the awesome pain of hell and eternal condemnation by his Father, taking my sin on him until he had to cry, My God, why have you forsaken me? The cross was everything that hell is about, a divine curse, wrath, abandonment, suffering, woe, darkness, you name it. Why the cross? The New Testament comes back with the answer. Why the cross? Because God loved those he had determined in the mystery of his grace that he would save from all eternity. So he marched his son into hell. And his son went willingly. The wrath of God is not about cruelty, and the love of God is not about sentimentality. At the cross, you see, justice and holiness and love and sin all meet. The Bible says justice and righteousness there kiss each other, they're resolved. And if you're ready to say that heaven, In eternity in the presence of God means the full sunshine of God's face and the blessing and the joy and the rapture of being with him forever, then you have to understand that the other side of that issue means the absolute abhorrence of God for all sin is equally upon those who do not have the covering of Christ over them. Now, that's my dealing with that case, and I may or may not have convinced you, and if you are saying, Pastor, my emotions, my heart, my mind cries out and says annihilationism is more attractive, I am not ready to label you a heretic. I do think you need to look hard at Scripture. This matter is complex. We could explore it for hours with many more texts. I've just tried to give you a basic outline of the arguments for and the arguments against. But it seems pretty clear, and certainly thousands of interpreters have concluded, that the main doctrine of the Bible, hard as it is, defends the concept of eternal suffering of some kind for the lost. Regret, woe, I wish it was different, and now I can't change it over the relatively superficial answer of annihilation. Finally, then, let me close on some things here. We have a right to ask, what should we possibly learn from the very painful subject of seeing hell as portrayed in the Bible? And you probably say, boy, am I glad this is over with. He's finishing this before Thanksgiving and Christmas. Believe me, I planned that. I'm not entirely stupid. I'm not going to preach about hell in December. (laughs) But what should we learn from the painful subject of seeing hell in the Bible? For one thing, ladies and gentlemen, I think we learned to color within the lines as we were taught to do in kindergarten. That is this. If you seek to have an authentic biblical faith, you must take hold of the prickly and awful truths of Scripture along with the ones that please you. We have to follow the Bible where it takes us. Secondly, I think hell ought to alarm us as no other subject can about the awful weight and penalty of sin. We are so able to just brush sin off. Oh, just oh, I should have forgiven that guy, but I just, you know, I really don't want to do it. Oh, I told a little lie. Sin is offense against the holiness of God. It is a horrible, malignant cancer that's at work in every one of us, and if it is not dealt with, as it can only be, by the cancer surgeon Jesus Christ, then it will destroy us. Thirdly, we must reject foolish human assumptions that as, say nearly all human beings are naturally headed for heaven. All you have to do is go to a funeral. Doesn't matter who the person was, doesn't matter what they believed or didn't believe, you will encounter somebody saying, Oh, John's in a better place. Maybe he is, and maybe he isn't. John 3.18 says human beings are condemned already unless the righteousness of Christ covers them. It says hell is our default destination. Jesus refuted the notion that any action of your life, any piling up of merit, any amount of good deeds you ever do, if they equal the highest mountain in the world, will ever let you deserve heaven. Deserve heaven? Are you kidding? Nobody deserves heaven. We deserve hell. And no one in hell can rail against God and say, you unjustly sent me here. I didn't want to come. I wanted to get into heaven, but you didn't let me in. That is absolute nonsense. God sends no one. We send ourselves. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. And those who do enter heaven. Do so, the Scripture says, only by receiving as a wonderful, simple gift the marvel of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place, took our penalty, and says, now receive from me eternal life. You didn't do anything for it. You don't deserve it, but I want to give it to you. Those who come to heaven have received the gift. What will motivate a greater appreciation of that grace than to know the pain, the depth, the woe of the alternative. And fourthly, this as an application, to contemplate hell for even a few minutes, let alone four Sundays of sermons, should quicken any Christian, should stir you up as you need to be stirred up toward prayer and witness that is the tool of God in evangelism. People we know and care about are headed for this destination. This is not abstract theology. Would to God that he might use you or me. And marvel of marvels, he does that. He uses us. Our voice, our witness, our testimony, our prayers, he uses us. Marvelously, I don't know how, he could do it without us, but he wants to use us to turn people away from this destination. A story is told about someone I hold dear in my life who i met several times and whose writings were very important to me. Dr. Francis Schaeffer was teaching college students at his retreat center called Le Brie in the mountains of Switzerland in the 60s. He often had dialogues with the students after he would lecture on a subject, and he would answer any question, and he was beloved because he answered questions squarely and forthrightly and honestly and used the Scriptures. And so someone in a discussion time said one evening, Dr. Schaefer, what about those who have never heard the gospel? And the students were puzzled because this eloquent pastor-scholar didn't answer right away. In fact, he had his elbows on the lectern, I guess, and he kind of covered his face like this. And they thought he must be tired. Why doesn't he answer? And then they realized Dr. Schaefer's shoulders were heaving because his only answer about the lost was to weep. He wept. What about the lost? Another story is told by John Blanchard, a British evangelist. True story. About an accident that happened in the dense fog that often occurs around London. This was years ago. Actually scores of cars collided, you know, with these great chain reaction accidents that sometimes happen. We have them in the states as well. And this one happened and the cars were cascading into it and crashing and And those who either steered to the side or avoided it or crashed and were able to get out, some had presence of mind, and they ran back to get back behind the accident as far back as they could go, and they took flashlights, some of them, or they they had orange traffic cones in their cars, and they took whatever they had, and they ran back, and the cars were coming, racing along, and they were waving their arms, stop, stop, don't, go any farther, Some of them threw their flashlights at the cars and threw orange cones at the cars. And they said people raced right on and crashed one after another into the traffic carnage that was ahead. And 10 people died. People, some of us need to start shouting Some of us need to start waving our arms, perhaps, maybe throw a flashlight at somebody who needs to hear where they're headed. And do you realize that as we close today, what the cross of Jesus Christ rescues you from? Can you just sit content in that and say, I'm taken care of, too bad about everybody else. Have you glimpsed how wide and long and high and deep was the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge to lift us from this? And do you begin, perhaps, to estimate how infinitely worthy was the death of your Savior, the Lord Jesus, since he plunged right through hell's horror, and he did it? for you. Thanks be to God. Our Father, help us to be people who in our prayer, our lives, our witness, our giving to missions and evangelism will be at the side of the road waving our arms and throwing our flashlights to let people know what they face without Christ. And, oh, God, how we thank you. How we thank you for the bliss we have yet to even fully consider in the Scripture that is ours in him, a gift undeserved. I pray today, Father, that each one would take hold of it with thanks and gratitude and praise to Jesus Christ. Amen.